0: We come to know God rightly, not through our own efforts, not through our own steam, not through our own machinations, not through our own mental processes, but rather the Scripture everywhere screams at us that we come to know God through revelation.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today we continue our study of true biblical worship as our teacher moves further into our current series titled The Heart of Worship. Last time, Tom began to examine what it means to worship God in truth, an appropriate response to an accurate understanding of God and His self-revelation. And that self-revelation reached its ultimate climax in Jesus Christ. As Tom will teach today, if you're serious about worshipping God, if you really want to worship Him in spirit and in truth, you must come to Him on His terms. The question is, are you? Do you worship God in the way He has prescribed in Scripture? Or might you be creating an idol of your own imagination? Keep this in mind as we join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed.
0: Well, just in case they missed what he meant by calling God his Father, he defines it. Look at verse 30. I and the Father are one. That is, we are unity. We are of one essence. Say, well, wait a minute. Are you sure that's what Jesus meant? That's not what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Well, the Jews certainly understood that. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we are not stoning you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man... Make yourself out to be God. You see, they understood that by that statement, I and the Father are one, we are unity, we are of one essence, Jesus was claiming to be God himself. Jesus responds to them, and he ends his explanation by making the same point again. Verse 38. Let's look at verse 37. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand this, that the Father is in me and I in the Father. He simply reasserts in slightly different language the same point, and they get it again. Look at their response. Therefore, verse 39, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. When Jesus called God his Father, he was speaking in special terms of his equality with God. And as obvious here, the Jews understood that claim, and on this occasion and on several others in the Gospels, they picked up stones to stone him. So Jesus' relationship to the Father was unique. Unlike anyone else, he was the only begotten God. He was the eternal Son. He is God's unique son, in every sense, fully equal with God. But Jesus also taught us to think of God as a father, in a different way, in a different sense. You remember, even in Matthew chapter six, verse nine, Jesus said, "This is how I want you to pray. Pray our Father." We are to approach our God as we would a father. Why is that? Because as the epistles explain, something amazing happens at the moment of salvation. The moment you repented of your sins and embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God really adopted you as his own. We use that language, you know, I'm a child of the king, and we use it almost as if it's not real it's kind of ethereal no it's really true at the moment of salvation god legally adopted you as his own child you belong to him he is in every sense your father we can call god our abba just as jesus did that term of reverence and intimacy Here's the amazing truth. The same intimacy that exists between the Father and Christ from all eternity is ours. Philip Ryken writes, Jesus teaches us to call God Father and to do so with confidence, even if we have never known a Father's love. This is because Jesus knows that a Father's love is what we have always longed for. He invites us to become God's beloved child. He teaches us to speak to him as our dear father. That's what Jesus was teaching this woman and us about the one we worship. God has revealed himself as a father. But he also teaches us that God has revealed himself as a savior. Jesus had already showed this woman her sin, and her desperate, desperate need for a Savior. Look back in verse 16 of John 4. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. He had put in bold relief her desperate need of a savior she knew her sin and Jesus had made sure that she embraced it and then in verse 22 he had said salvation is from the Jews in other words it's through the God of Israel that any hope of spiritual rescue can be found but there's another crucial truth about God as savior in this passage it's in verse 23 notice how verse 23 ends and I love this For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now what does that mean? It's a rather enigmatic expression. What does it mean? It could mean that only, or I I should say, it could mean only that worship is so important to God that he himself is seeking out worshipers. It's so important that he wants worship. But I think there's more implied in this phrase than just the importance of worship. I think instead, it answers a crucial question. It answers the question of how do you and I become true worshipers? Why are you here this morning? Why am I here? Why are we true worshipers of God? Is it because we seek God? Jesus says no. It's because in Christ, the Father seeks us. Notice the flow of logic in verse 23. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Why? For, because the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, what is implicit in that statement, Jesus makes explicit just a couple of chapters later. Turn over to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, verse 36 Jesus here is interchanging with those who've rejected him, and he says, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now skip down to verse 44. He makes the same point again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice what Jesus is saying here. It is impossible for you to come to me. We all remember our mothers, or many of us do anyway, our mothers teaching us the difference between may and can. Mom, can I have an ice cream cone? Well, son, of course you are physically capable of having an ice cream cone. That's what can means. Are you asking, may I have an ice cream cone? Well, can implies ability. That's exactly why Jesus uses that word here. It's the same in Greek as in English. This is a talking about ability. No one has the ability to come to me unless, with this exception, the Father who sent me draws him. The word draws is a very interesting word. It's not the word to woo. Father woos us. It's a word that means to compel by force. It's a word that's translated in in Acts of the Apostles as dragging someone off to prison. Now, that doesn't mean God drags us to himself against our will. As the great reformer said, no, God instead makes us willing to come. God draws us. Only those come to me, Christ said, whom the Father draws. The Father is seeking worshipers. Why do we need to be drawn? what's our problem turn over another couple of chapters to John chapter 8 in verse 39 again Jesus is having this interchange with these who have not believed in him verse 39 of John 8 they answered and said to him Abraham is our father they had that great ethnic pride that they had descended from Abraham they were his physical offspring Jesus said to them, if you are truly Abraham's children, that is, if you're his true descendants, his spiritual descendants, then do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. You are doing instead the deeds of your true father. And they said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. By the way, this is undoubtedly a less than subtle slap at Jesus Christ. There had been questions raised about who his true parents were because, of course, the story of the virgin birth had been distorted by his enemies and the questions were, who was his true father? So they're they're getting in a dig at Christ here. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them in verse 42, If God were your father, but he's not, You would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he has sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? That's a good question. Why didn't they get it? Well, Jesus explains. It is because, verse 43, you cannot, there's that word again, you do not have the capacity, the ability to hear my word. Why? Verse 44, it's because you're of your father, the devil. There's your true father. You have a different father. It's the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there was no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you don't believe me. Verse 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. You first have to be of God to hear and understand the words of God. You see what Jesus is saying here? We are by nature, just like they were, children of the devil. He is our father by birth. And left to ourselves, we will respond to Christ the same way these Jewish leaders responded. The only way that you and I can become true worshipers is if God seeks us out and if God draws us to himself. If by grace he makes us true worshipers. And here's the amazing reality of it all. God Almighty has done just that. The fact that you're here this morning and you care about worshiping the true God is because God sought you out. What Jesus taught this woman about God is that he is by nature a savior and he seeks out even the worst sinners like this woman and he makes them worshipers. The worst sinners like you and like me. And he makes us true worshipers. The question that comes into my mind is why? Why would God do that? Why does he want me to be his worshiper? Well, Jesus explains. Turn to John 17. In his high priestly prayer the night before his crucifixion. Look at what Jesus prayed to the Father. Verse 24. John 17. Father. I desire that they also, whom you have given me. That's an interesting expression. Father, you have given me these people. You drew them to yourself and you gave them to me. I want them to be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. That is a remarkable verse. You know, when we think of our salvation, we tend to think, again, it's about us. And in one sense, that's true, of course. God loved you. God loved you because he loved you. Because it's God's nature to be a savior and to love. But why you and why me? What was God doing? You see, our salvation is part of a great cosmic eternal plan. You know what really is happening? God the Father has always loved the Son. And in an eternity past, he promised to give him a gift of love, a redeemed humanity that would forever praise him and reflect his glory by being like him. You are a love gift from the Father to the Son. That's why God sought you. That's why he's made you a true worshiper so that you will worship the Son forever. There's one more great lesson Christ had for this woman and has for us about God. He wanted her to know that God has not only revealed himself as the Father, he's not only revealed himself as the Savior, but also God has revealed himself in his Son. You have to interpret this phrase, worship in truth, in the context of John's gospel. Let me remind you of the context. Go back to John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word speaking of Christ here, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, and he was full of truth. Jesus was full of truth. He was permeated by truth. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but truth was realized through Jesus Christ. Not only is he full of truth, but he was the source of truth, To others. In the passage we looked at just a moment ago, in chapter 8, verse 40, it says, Jesus says to them, You're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you or taught you the truth, which I heard from God. Jesus was full of truth, Jesus was the source of truth, and Jesus taught the truth. But by far, the most remarkable statement our Lord made regarding the truth comes in John chapter 14. Turn there with me. John 14. My namesake, Thomas, in verse 5, says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and I am the truth. Not I know the truth, not I teach you the truth, but I am the truth. Think about that for a moment. In a world adrift in a sea of relativism, Jesus claims that everything he is, that everything he says, that everything he does is absolutely, objectively true. And everything that conflicts with what he is and says and does is objectively false. So when Jesus says that true worship must be in truth, He means that it must be in response to an accurate understanding of God and his self-revelation, and that self-revelation reached its climax in him. The only right way to worship the Father is through the Son and what he taught us about the Father. So you see here then this great law that true worship is not intuitive but must be directed by God's truth. To worship God in truth, you must understand the truth about worship, and you must understand the truth about God. You see, worship is not some kind of a wax nose that you can shape however you want. If you're serious about worshiping God, you must come to God on His terms. God has prescribed how He is to be worshipped. Think about this with me for just a moment. God has decided who will worship Every Christian will worship him. He's decided in what venues and what context we will worship, that we will worship individually in our private lives, that we will worship in our families, and that we will worship together in the church with other believers. In the Scripture, God has prescribed how we are to think of him when we worship, what our conception of him is to be. We can't just decide what God is like. Well, you know, my God is love. Yes, God is love. But the same God who said, I am love, also says, I am coming in wrath to destroy those who are my enemies. You can't remake God. He's also determined what our attitude in worship ought to be. We studied that last week together. When we come to worship, we can't just decide, you know, well, this is how I think it ought to be done. God says, when you come in worship before me, come in humble submission, come in thankful praise and adoration, and come in godly fear. God has decided the elements are the components of our worship, both individually and corporately. And all of those components center in his revelation, in the Bible. That's why we can say, well, how do we worship God? And we're going to talk about this more in a couple of weeks. How do we worship God? Well, we worship God by we sing the Scripture, By that I mean we sing music rooted in the truth of Scripture. We pray the Scripture. Our prayers are our response to the Scripture. We read the Scripture. Paul told Timothy to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. We teach the Scripture and hear it taught. And when we gather as the church, we give our offerings. Why? To see true biblical worship supported here and extended beyond these walls. And we see the Scripture acted out in worship in two signs or ceremonies, baptism and the Lord's table. Worship is all about the Scripture. In terms of corporate worship, God has even appointed the day we are to worship, the Lord's day, the first day of the week. You can't just decide, you know, I think I'm going to worship on Saturday because it's more convenient for me and I can make all the games. You can't just make those decisions. God has prescribed these things. God has determined who can and who can't lead in worship. I can't say, well, you know, she's a wonderful person and a committed Christian, so I think she needs to lead the worship. It's contrary to what God has revealed. The only decisions that God has left open to us about worship are what theologians call the incidentals. For example, things like where we worship. Bible doesn't say that. The order in which the prescribed components or elements come. We can change the order if we choose. The specifics of which songs are sung on a given time when we come together to worship or the passages we read or the prayers we pray. Whether we use hymn books or PowerPoint or we sing the songs from memory. What time of day we meet. How often on the day we meet other incidentals like these. Those are up to us and to the leadership of the church, of each church, to decide. But most of what we do in worship is prescribed by God, both your individual and private worship, as well as the corporate worship of the church. Everything important about worship has been decided by God and has been revealed in his word to us. And this has been the testimony both of the Scripture and of church history. Listen to the one voice of both the Westminster Confession of Faith, which goes in the Presbyterian and Reformed direction, as well as the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. It's put like this. Both of them say the same thing. Listen to the wording. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will, that's the Scripture, that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men are any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. We can't just decide how we're going to worship God. You can't decide that individually, and I can't decide that in the elders of how we're going to do it as a church. God has decided that. And true worshipers, Jesus says, worship God in truth. That is, directed by His truth.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 12 of The Heart of Worship. Tom will have part 13 for you next time. Do join us then. But Tom, before we end our time today, how about sharing a final thought with us?
0: Well, we've learned that the big picture of our worship is laid out and prescribed so carefully in the scripture and that we must follow but we've also learned that the incidentals are left up to the leadership of each church and to each individual so let me just encourage you follow the biblical prescription for worship but worship worship where you are worship the way that you can in the context of your personal life each day, and the church where the Lord has placed you. Worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And he will be pleased with that if it's in keeping with his wonderful self-revelation and the prescription he's given us in his word for worship.
1: Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at one eight seven seven five seven seven word And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed.